This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. The title for today is, The Best of Men Are Men at Best. And we'll be looking at Peter's denials of Jesus. And what I want to do in looking at this is for my own soul... And I trust for yours because we're going to see the darkness of every person's heart in dealing with our own faithfulness. And we'll see the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus in meeting us in our darkest denials, in our darkest doubts. The best of men are men at best. Now, as you're turning there, I want to give you a little background. Um, we, we, we can't just drop into this, into this paragraph without some orientation. When you try to stitch together the last... 10 or 12 hours of Jesus' life. It's called harmonizing these gospel accounts. I want to confess, it is difficult. It is really difficult to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, put all of the accounts together and realize what happened in what order because they all emphasize different parts of those last hours of the Lord's life for various reasons. So just a little bit of orientation. Jesus goes through six trials in succession in, very fa- in a very fast pace. He's arrested in the garden, as you know. He's taken up from the garden to Annas' house. Annas served as the high priest for 16 years. He was kind of like the godfather of of, uh, Jerusalem, and everyone looked up to him. And he was the one who was kind of the the puppet master behind all of the religious goings-on. So they took him to him first, saying, Annas will surely slam dunk Jesus and we can get him executed. Annas' charge against Jesus was that he claimed to be the Son of God, which was an accurate charge. But he could find nothing worthy of death, so he sent him to his son-in-law, the then-serving Caiaphas, who was serving as high priest that year. Caiaphas began to try him and and, um, uh, stress him with questions, and his only charge was this man claimed to be the Son of God. Both Annas and Caiaphas had Jesus beaten and beaten severely. In fact, it was after this uh, occasion that Annas took him down, put a bag over his head, according to Matthew 26, and they were beating him in the face saying, if you're a prophet, then prophesy and tell us the one hitting you since you can't see. Well, after that, they realized that they were in a lot of trouble, so they, they getting Jesus executed, so they brought the entire Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the, the, the leaders in the Sanhedrin and the scribes, and they all had their own mock trial and could find nothing worthy of death, so they bumped him over to Pilate. Pilate, who was the prefect over that secularly, he tried Jesus and could find nothing wrong with him, so he bumped him over to Herod Antipas, Herod the Great's son, who was visiting from Galilee that week for uh, the Passover, thinking Herod is the, is the chief of everything. He can make this really, really brief. He's got the power of execution. Well, Herod questioned Jesus, and Jesus wouldn't answer him. So he had nothing to try him for, and bounces him back for the sixth trial to Pilate. Pilate tried every way he could to get Jesus off, and he couldn't. So he gives him to the last, really the seventh ultimate trial, and he turned him over to the crowds saying, I'll give you Barabbas or I'll give you Jesus, thinking they would surely choose to have Barabbas executed over Jesus. And what did they say? Crucify him. Well, if you kind of back up in that sequence, right after the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas tried Jesus and beat him, we find this account. In Mark. 
Let me read that for us. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. One of the most complicated men of the English Reformation was a man named Thomas Cranmer. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was burned at the stake at Oxford on the 21st of March, 1556, for having the convictions of the gospel against the Roman Catholic Church. Cranmer had served King Henry VIII. He had been influential in bringing the Protestant Reformation to England. But in the process, he advised Henry to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, because of her Catholicism and unwillingness to receive the gospel. Then he married a lady named Anne Boleyn. Following the birth of Mary's half-sister, Elizabeth, the future Queen Elizabeth I, in September of 1533, an act of parliament was passed declaring Catherine's 17-year-old daughter Mary illegitimate and removed her from succession to the throne. She was reinstated, by the way, in 1543 by the third act of succession in Henry's will. Mary was denied access from that point on to her mother, Catherine, and exiled into obscurity. When Mary was exiled, she never forgot that Thomas Cranmer the advisor to King Henry VIII had been behind her exile. She never forgot what Cranmer had done to her. Cranmer served Henry's son, Edward VI, the boy king who reigned for six years, then Lady Jane Grey, the nine-day queen, who obviously reigned for nine days, and then was put in prison and executed after Mary came back to the throne. Mary, when she came back to the throne after the death of of her father and, and um, her brother, immediately came after Thomas Cranmer. Now, why all this English history background? This is important. She told Thomas Cranmer, if you will deny the gospel, if you will deny the Protestant understanding of justification by faith alone without works, if you will deny that, that Jesus is represented in communion by memory and not by re being re-crucified in the Roman Mass. If you will deny those Protestant doctrines, I'll let you live. Well, in a moment of weakness, he did so. 
he signed a recantation of the gospel and of the Protestant doctrines of the Reformation. In fear for his life, he tried to get away. Mary then changed her mind and pronounced him to be guilty of heresy, condemned him, deposed him, and sentenced him to be burned at the stake as a heretic anyway. This is why we call Mary Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor. J.C. Ryle, the great historian, writes of Thomas Cranmer this, Thomas Cranmer fell. He put his hand to paper in which he repudiated and renounced the principles of the Reformation for which he had so long labored. In a moment of fear and weakness, he pulled back from his faithfulness. Then Ryle writes those often quoted words about Thomas Cranmer. Quote, it stands forth as an everlasting proof that the best of men are only men at best. End quote. No truer words could be said of the apostle Peter. He was a man who was the best of men, but he was just a man at best only a man. The passage before us chronicles his weakness, his humanity. It's one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. A little reminder to what you already know. Peter, very prolific character in the New Testament. He was a fisherman by trade, was called by the Lord to be a disciple from the boat where he was fishing from, told he would then be a fisher, not a fish, but of men. He was married, according to Matthew's, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, 5, talks about his wife. Peter walked on water for a minute. He confessed, was the one who confessed Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah. He was nicknamed the Rock by the Savior. He was a part of Jesus' inner circle with James and John. He saw such things as no other human ever got to witness. He, he was there inside that room the first time Jesus demonstrated his power over death when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. The most powerful revelation of his true identity. He was there. He was there at the transfiguration. Witnessed Jesus transfigured. And get this, he met Moses and Elijah. <laughs> he was invited into the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus faced his passion. He supported Jesus in his agony, though unfaithfully by falling asleep. Peter was perhaps one of the most privileged men to have ever lived, to have been born. He had more evidence for the true identity of Jesus than perhaps anyone alive at that time. But here, in a moment of weakness, we will watch Peter the rock be reduced to gravel. A few hours earlier, though, he was not so cowardice. He was a pillar of self-confidence. But in the passage before us, his self-confidence evaporates into blithering denial of his friend and his Lord. And I think there's much for us to see in this about ourselves as we look to Peter and about our Savior as he looks to us. So if you'd like an outline, we're going to go through three progressions in a sad account of self-confidence. Three progressions in a sad account of self-confidence. And I think we can find even mirrors in our own life as we look at Peter's denial. 
The first is not exactly in this passage. We have to go back to the previous context to grab. Number one, faithless confidence. That's what Peter begins with, faithless confidence. This is in the paragraph and the progression right before that. Look back at chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus said to them, this is Jesus' last call and charge to his men, to his disciples. And it must have been a surprise to them all, especially to Peter. Jesus said to them, how about this? He just says, I'm going to go away. I'm about to go be the propitiation for sin. He's instructed them on how to live a life with him without him in the upper room discourse. And this is his last statement. You will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter, oh wow, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet not I. By the way, all of who? These other ten, Judas is gone. So these other ten, they're going to fall away. Not, not me, not me. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And now the chorus starts up. And they all were saying the same thing too. Yeah, me too, me too, me too, the other guy said. Interestingly, Jesus quotes Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, that the sheep will abandon the shepherd. So the scripture said that they would all fall away. And Jesus said himself to Peter, you will fall away. Peter denies Jesus and the scriptures and says, I know what you and the Bible say, but I'm better than bigger than, than that. What's self-confidence? Going against both scripture and Jesus himself, he expresses pronounced confidence that he will never deny the Lord. Wow. Jesus informs him a second time in verse 30 that this very night, just in a few hours, you will deny me three times before the sunrise. No, I won't, he says. Stunning self-confidence. But can I suggest, based on what we're going to read, this confidence is not born of faith but born of fleshly confidence. I think we learn something here. It's so much easier to think a big game and to talk a big game than to live a faithful life. We can be brave in, in moments of confidence, but when, when it comes to standing for the Lord, saying something we should for the Lord, not denying the Lord, being a witness for the Lord, that's tougher. Well, that's just background that Peter stood in faithless confidence. But we come to the heart of this story in our second of the three progressions in a sad account of self-confidence. Number two, cowardly denial. Number two, cowardly denial. Verse 66. Now we come to our text. As Peter was below in the courtyard, this is instructive just in this little phrase. This was a typical Roman villa belonging to Caiaphas. And as such, it would have been a larger Mediterranean villa, a home surrounded, which had an atrium, a courtyard surrounded by a two-story kind of square or rectangle of buildings. We know that it had an upstairs because Jesus is above and Peter is below. 
And we found many uh, excavations of villas just like this in Israel. Mark tells us here, Peter was below indicated that Jesus' trial is taking place in a room above the courtyard. So he's looking up, seeing what's happening. He's in the courtyard below. And then it happens. One of the servant girls, John 18, 16, by the way, tells us it was the girl who was guarding the door, keeping the door. She was the doorkeeper. Of the high priest, she has a great relationship with that man literally upstairs trying Jesus, came. (laughs) And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus the Nazarene. Evenings in March and April in Israel can be chilly, especially in Jerusalem. This particular night was cool enough that a fire was built in that little courtyard below where people were standing around warming themselves and Peter, being cold, comes to the fire and begins warming himself as well. I think he's trying to blend in. He wants to, he, he wants to be close to Jesus, but not so close. He wants to know what's happening, but not to be found out. He's warming himself, trying to blend in, and then he is recognized in the light of the fire, no doubt. Remember, Peter had been with Jesus on the Temple Mount all that week. And as we know from the, when they came up the hill, and James and John arguing about who would get to sit on the right and the left, and everyone wanting to be with Jesus, I'm sure Jesus is teaching. Remember the, the, uh, the, the triumphal entry, and everyone looked to him with great admiration and I'm sure Peter on the Temple Mount was standing next to Jesus. I'm one. Me too. He doesn't want to be noticed now. His recognition is a shock. His goal was to be incognito. Remember, he abandoned Jesus not long before this in the garden. They all ran. And now Peter has been identified as an accomplice to the prisoner upstairs. He's identified by this girl as a man from Nazareth. That'll be important to note in just a minute from Galilee. And similar to the different accents that we have. By the way, it's good to be in Knoxville where uh, people talk like the Lord intended English to be spoken. You know, we don't, I'm in a world where they talk about pies and this is pie back here. Love being here. It's wonderful. Well, he had a northern accent. And they would have noticed, noted that he, had a, he spoke differently. He was a Galilean. They could have told that. He didn't dress any differently. He spoke differently. He, that's how he was recognized when he began protesting. Verse 68. You were with him, she says, the girl says. But he denied it. And he goes further than that. I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. Denial number one. The original Greek here is emphatic. Peter goes to great lengths to deny the Lord. Literally, the text can be translated, I literally know him, nor have any idea what you mean. I don't know who's upstairs. There's a trial upstairs. That's amazing. I'm just cold by the fire. Mark quotes Peter using two different Greek words for the word know. Oida, I don't know him. Epistemi, I have no concept of who you're talking about. He's gripped with fear. He's gripped with exposure. He's been found out. And he moves away from the fire and slips out toward the door, the porch, the entryway. 
By the way, John tells us that this girl's position was what? The guardian of the doorway. He went to the wrong place. Verse 69, we find her again. This little tattletale. The servant girl saw him, verse 69, and began once more, she's dogging him, to say, now she's not talking to him, she's talking to everyone around, talking to the bystanders. This is one of them. But again, he denied it. Denial number two. The girl apparently follows Peter to the entryway, continues her identification and accuses him a second time of being a friend of Jesus. I love the way she talks to him about him. You are one of them. Gives us a keen insight. Jesus and the disciples were known to the Jewish leaderships as them, an identifiable group. You're one of them. But notice the change. She's no longer talking to him. She's talking to the bystanders, the other people who are probably soldiers, probably uh, uh, voyeurs who are coming to see this, this trial. And for a second time, Peter denies Jesus. This second interaction, though, he turns up the volume. Verse 70 informs us that the accusation against Peter spreads from the girl to the crowd. After a while, the bystanders were saying to Peter. So see, see how this is spreading? The girl to Peter by the fire, the girl to the bystanders by the door, and now the bystanders all turn on Jesus after a little while, the people, the crowd, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. You, you have a Galilean, a northern accent. How is Peter going to respond to this? Look at this. But he, Peter, to prove his point, began to curse and to swear. I do not know he doesn't even call him Jesus. This man, look at the distance. I do not know this man you are talking about. Denial number three. But the language here is interesting because the, the, the tense of the verb says he kept on denying. It was, it was not just three times. It was multiple occasions. Three occasions, multiple denials in that. Peter launched on an extended denial this time. And the more Peter spoke, the more people heard his northern accent, Galilean dialect, and they knew that he surely was one of them. This third denial, it, 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 it just, it's the saddest to me. He says, I was not a part of Jesus' band. And he adds profanity and swearing to his denial. Why is that the case? Jesus was known as a pillar of virtue, a holy man, a righteous man. How could he possibly prove to the crowd that he was not with this righteous man by speaking unrighteously? Cussing and cursing. I am unrighteous. Not like the righteous one. What, what extent he went to? The, the Greek here, the swearing actually is is worse than it looks like in the English. He swore by God's name he wasn't an associate of Jesus. By the way, John tells us 
interestingly, in John 18, 26, that one of the men who was standing there and the bystanders accusing Peter had unique credibility. <laughs> um, what kind of credibility did he have? He was a relative of the one whose ear was cut off by Peter. <laughs> so Peter couldn't get out of this one. Actually, we know that you're not only one of them. You cut my cousin's ear off. I always wondered, just a little, little footnote, is um, Malchus had his ear cut off, had it healed. I, there's, we, don't, we know nothing about what happened to him after the garden, after his ears cut off and Jesus puts it back on. I just wonder, I, I'm just speculating. I have no authority to say this or even to speculate about it, but I wonder if he ever came to know the Lord. Can you imagine his story the rest of his life? I was in the garden just minding my own business. Whack! My ear is down. And he put it back on. He put my ear back on. Now, without getting into details, Peter used a, a machaira, which is a, a dagger, not a ramphira, which is a big sword, which means he was probably trying to cut his head off and he probably moved and just got his ear. Falls to the ground and Jesus says, I can take care of that. Puts his ear back on and then goes up to be tried. Incredible grace. But he's emphatic. Peter was with him. Peter was in the garden. Peter defended him. Peter drew a sword out. But Peter's cowardice has been exposed not once, not twice, but three times. He's now publicly denied Jesus three times and multiple times within these categories of, of denial. This is Peter. Remember who we're talking about. Cowardly denial. But that leads us to where we really find our, our practical lesson here. And that's the third progression in a sad account of self-confidence. Number three, broken contrition. Broken contrition. Verse 72, immediately, one of Mark's favorite words, just then, right then, perfectly timed, God's providence, exactly as Jesus had said it. That's all in that little word, immediately. A rooster crowed a second time, exactly as Jesus had said, before a rooster crows twice. This tells us it's about sunrise. Jesus will be on the cross in about three and a half hours. All of those trials take place in rapid succession in about four hours. It's incredible. Rooster crows a second time, and Peter, uh, his memory starts working. And then Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began, he began to weep. Jesus' prediction with Peter was that these denials would happen before the rooster crows the second time by sunrise. And just happened exactly, exactly as the Lord had commanded. When, by the way, when you stitch these together, remember that, that quick progression of the six trials. This was right after the Sanhedrin and uh, Caiaphas trial, which means that it's at this moment that Jesus is downstairs in the courtyard when they're putting the bag on his head where he can't see and they're taking, they're taking turns punching him. You're a prophet. If you're a prophet, then you'll know who's hitting you. Prophesy until the one hitting you and they're bludgeoning him. 
At some point, they take the bag off. And Luke helps us here. This crushing moment of realization happens with Peter. His only reflex is to sob. He's watching, he's watching his master and his friend beaten to a pulp. Verse 20, Luke twenty two sixty one says, The Lord turned at this moment. He turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Only Luke records that Jesus made eye contact with Peter after the third denial. It must have been an intense look. Can you, can you even stomach imagining the look that they shared with each other? Jesus has now been brought down to the courtyard. He's beaten with this bag over his head, according to Matthew 26. He looks across as he's taken out. And Peter and Jesus share this, this visual exchange. Let's back up from this scene for a moment. Mark is writing to a group of persecuted, probably Gentiles, maybe Romans, that they would be encouraged to remain faithful and the genius of Mark weaving this in, I think, is an encouragement to them and to us that Peter's denials would be a lasting lesson for them and us that even the best, most faithful Christian is, is not immune to unfaithfulness. But here's the equal lesson. No believer is beyond the promises of God's grace and forgiveness. The Lord knew this was going to happen. The Lord predicted this was ha- going to happen. Judas has denied Jesus, sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, left to be the treacherous traitor that he was. His guilty conscience would lead him to hang himself. Peter's guilt and broken conscience would lead him to a very different response. Thomas Cranmer had renounced his commitment to the gospel and signed that recantation of his principles, the Protestant gospel to save his life. But cruel, bloody Mary Tudor, again, would not accept that recantation, sentenced him to be burned anyway. Just before he was burned, he was taken into St. Mary's Cathedral in Oxford. My wife and I have stood there in this, in this precious place where they built a scaffold in order for him to stand and tell the crowd that indeed Catholicism was right, the works applied to the gospel were needed, and that Mary was right, he was wrong before he was executed. They built a scaffold. In order to do that, they chopped part of a column in the, in the church off. And, and I've seen the column that they carved out. I've been able to put my hand there and just in a, in a sweet devotional moment of solidarity with this, this dear brother who died. They built this scaffold. They put him on to tell the world that he was going to die, signifying that the Protestant gospel was indeed heresy. And here's what he said. And now I come to the great thing, says Cranmer, which so troubleth my conscience more than anything I ever did or said my whole life. They were expecting him to recant the Protestant gospel, but instead he recants his recantation. 
and after seeing, uh, setting abroad and rotting contrary to the truth, which I now renounce and refuse as things written by my hand, contrary to the truth, which I thought in my heart and written for fear of death, to save my own life as it would be. And that is all such bills and papers which I have written or signed with that hand and my degradation wherein I have written so many things untrue. He's recanting his recantation. And for such as my hand has offended the Lord, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall be the first to be punished. Therefore, when I come to the fire, it shall be burned first. This enraged the crowd. They drug him off of the scaffold, took him out to a ditch outside of Oxford, tied him to a stake where they burned him alive. Listen to J.C. Rowell's account of what happened next. But then the time came for Cranmer's triumph. With a light heart and a clear conscience, he cheerfully allowed himself to be hurried to the stake amid the frenzied outcries of his disappointed enemies. Boldly and undauntedly, he stood up at the stake while the flames curled around him, steadily holding out his right hand down in the flames and saying with reference to his having signed a recantation, this unworthy right hand and steadily holding up his left hand towards heaven of all the martyrs strange to say none at the last moment showed more physical courage than Cranmer did says Ryle nothing in short in all his life became so well as the manner of his leaving it what a word greatly he had sinned but greatly he had repented witnesses says that he stood there while his hand burned until it was burned off to a nub and smiled and sang until he bowed his head in death. Then Ryle says this, like Peter, like Peter, Cranmer fell, but like Peter, he rose again. What was he speaking about? Well, I don't think that we can keep Peter in this denial without going to where he triumphed. Jesus, as you know, after the resurrection, appeared to his disciples several times. One of those appearances was up in Galilee, about 75 miles north of, of Jerusalem. He says, you go up there and I'll meet you there. Peter's returned up north, looked around, no Jesus. So he went back to what? Went back to fishing. Actually, it was a net. So he went back to fishing. One of those appearances is found only in the Gospel of John. But I think it recounts Peter's repentance in a way that's so encouraging. Not so much about Peter, but so much about the Lord. Listen, this is a paragraph, but it's worth, it's worth remembering. In John chapter 21, verse 1, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee where he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, and Did called Didymus, the twin, and Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two other disciples were together. Simon said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll come with you. They went out, got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. 
But when the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. 100 yards plus from the beach, they didn't see who it was. So Jesus said to them, children, guys, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. What's surprising to me is, so they cast and then they were unable to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Everything was wrong about this. If you go back historically, they would fish all night. They would put lanterns on the boat, which would attract fish. They could throw a net, and it was a, they, would, they would fish all night. This was in the morning. This was during daylight. This was close to the shore. Nothing about this should have worked, and it was the greatest haul they'd ever caught. Tilapia, no doubt. Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, It's the Lord! So when Peter heard that it was the Lord, I love this, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat. They weren't willing to let go of the fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire laid Already with fish placed, face, placed upon it and bread. Jesus had also been fishing that night. Had breakfast ready, ready for them. Jesus said to them, bring some of your fish, which you've now caught. Simon Peter went up and threw the net to the land full of large fish. About 153. All, it's interesting they counted every single one. There were so many, the net was not torn, which was a miracle in itself. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus manifested himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they finished breakfast, kind of finishing up, cleaning up, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than any of these? Now typically we look at these expressions of love, which were, you know, there's two different Greek words used by Jesus and, and, and Peter. Can I just say that's not the main point? It's not what Peter said to the Lord, but what the Lord says to Peter. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Jesus said to this thrice denying hypocrite, tend my Lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Do you see the response to Peter's unfaithfulness? The Lord forgave. The Lord moved on. The Lord gave grace. The Lord said, be a pastor. What do we take away from this? 
Can I give you just three simple ones? Wow. Number one, Jesus remains faithful when we are faithless. Can you be encouraged that Jesus remains faithful when we are faithless? There's two kinds of faithlessness. There's Judas's kind of faithlessness, which is apostasy and denial. And then there's the kind that all of us recognize. Those times when you know you should have said something about the Lord and you didn't. Those times when you said something weaker than you should have. Maybe the times when you said, yeah, I'm, I'm not as righteous as you think I am. I love this. Luke chapter 22 Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But, this is right before these denials, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. His faith seems to have failed three times, but not permanently. And that once you have turned again, you will strengthen your brothers, tend my sheep. I know you will be faithless, but I'm going to trump your faithlessness. What a great savior. What, a, what an understanding Savior. Even Think about this. The Lord's Supper, communion. You see the grace in that? He says, when you do this, do this to remember me. Why, why would the Lord tell, tell us that? Because he knew we would forget. And instead of saying, I can't believe you numbskulls have forgotten me again. He says, no, I'm just going to give you some reminders. I will remind you to remember me. Jesus remains faithful when we are faithless. What a Savior. Secondly, as we've said, momentary weak faith is different than permanent denial. Let that encourage you. If you are, and if, you've, if you're wondering if you have denied the Lord irrevocably, if you're wondering that, you haven't. So just come back. Please come back, which leads us to number three. While there is life and breath, there is opportunity to return to God. What a, what a gift of grace. I was in junior high, and I was at a youth conference, a youth retreat, rather, and uh, our junior high speaker that day said something that stuck. Uh, it's amazing that anything stuck in, in my uh, eastern Tennessee education in mind, but it, it did. Um, he, he said, listen, you can take... 100 steps away from God. But it's only one step back. Repent. Come home. And he always receives us with outstretched arms in eager anticipation to cover our sin with his death. The best of men and women are men and women at best. But hallelujah, we have a Savior who knows our frailty, who understands our cowardice, who sees our weaknesses, <laughs> and He loves us anyway. He is faithful, and He knows we're faithless. Can I encourage you to return to the Lord today from whatever levels of unfaithfulness you can find and see and expect that you will find a willing, smiling, gracious Lord and Master who wants to restore, who loves to grant forgiveness and his inclination, unlike ours, 
is to meet our unfaithfulness with love and faithfulness. Father, your grace is truly amazing and teach us to be amazed. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We find ourselves so often in faithlessness and in cowardice and sin and in treachery against heaven and yet you are so gracious you're so kind such a forgiver give us assurance and confidence not because of our lives but because of yours we love you because you first loved us in Jesus name amen You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.